Okay, we're live. We're live. We're live now, alhamdulillah. I'm just going to double check if we are actually live or if we're not live. Just give me a sec. I hope you're live. If anyone is currently watching, uh, apparently we've got seven viewers. If you could just message to see if everything's okay sound wise. Is the sound okay? Can you hear us and see us? Oh, maybe not. Let me just double check. I can check myself. Come to YouTube. Yes. Okay, apparently we're okay. Alhamdulillah. Okay. Let's start, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala nabihi al-kareem wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Wa bishrahi sadri wa sallamni wa ahlamu qadatan min lisani yafqaq qawli. Um, Assalamu alaikum brothers and uh, sisters, um, this is on behalf of Roots Academy and Roots Conversations, we've got a beautiful uh, session, uh, podcast session, uh, about to unravel ta'ala with uh, none other than Dr. Shaib, um, who I have, I have the, I have been obviously viewing his podcast recently, he's been, uh, he's the, uh, would you consider yourself a host as well, or is it? Yeah, I, the, I would be a host, yeah. Mashallah, he's hosting a lot of researchers and uh, academics. Uh, regarding Islamic um, Islamic thought within the academic um, uh, fields, and, uh, Dr. Shaib obviously is a, he's, a, he's actually a chemical engineer, formerly graduated as a chemical engineer, um, but uh, he he also you're also pursuing an alami, isn't it? You're doing an yeah, I'm currently doing an alami program. That's right. Yeah, so, mashallah. And you're trying to you're trying to merge the natural sciences and or the science and Islamic knowledge and trying to see how they you know they coincide and they can coexist i presume interact yeah inshallah alhamdulillah and we, we, inshallah we'll be able to explore that <coughs> uh, during this session inshallah uh, and to all our listeners and all our viewers inshallah who are watching don't forget to subscribe to the youtube channel uh, and our facebook our social media feeds and if you're watching this through the podcast as well or listening to this podcast as well we've got spotify we're on a range of podcast platforms as well so do do, do check that out uh, see if you can follow us and subscribe on those platforms too, and to spread the word. But in that Taala, so Shaib, uh, Doctor Shaib, would you like me to call you Doctor or I mean just call me Shaib? I'm cool with Shaib. Okay, so Shaib, before we start, Inshallah Taala, I thought you know what, let's just talk a bit about essentially. You know, how did you even uh, become interested in this subject entirely? Like, is is there? I mean. I understand Islam versus science or Islam and science is a very broad term, but how, how did you manage to find some sort of interest in this sort of broad categorization? Right. Okay. So I think that's a, that's a deep dive into history. Um, so it, the whole question started when I was in the middle of my PhD. Um, so my PhD was in chemistry and chemical engineering. And um, uh, alhamdulillah, I mean, like I was a top student, so I got a full scholarship from the University of Nottingham. So I, I didn't pay any tuition fees. Um, I taught my university, uh, my undergrad at Bath, Bath University in the UK. So in terms of me getting into the discipline of chemical engineering, I had no problems. But then uh, I come from a background where I was just the kind of individual who, um, who knew the, you know, the basic calls, the bismillahs and all that, but nothing more than that. I was, if I had to put a name to it, you could call me a cultural Muslim at the time. And um, I think by the time I was in my PhD, I really started questioning uh, due to several factors about my religion. 
And I think it was within the first year, that's when I really started you know, looking at Islam as a very serious option in the sense of understanding what Islam is, what, you know, what does it mean as a religion, what have you. So when I started my PhD, I was 21. And when I was 21, just to give you the extent of my knowledge, I didn't know what inshallah meant, didn't know what bismillah meant, none of those terms, I didn't know what they meant, right? I recited the Quran, but didn't know what it, what it meant at the time. So very, very, very shallow, simplistic knowledge, right? And, and, and this is not mean, I, I don't mean to kind of uh, make other people feel, uh, you know, um, like they're any less or anything like that. I'm just saying this was my status at the time, that I had very little knowledge, if not non-existent knowledge at the time. So, um, and then what happened was during my PhD, and this is the interesting part, my supervisor, Professor Sean Rigby, he's a very, very lovely guy, right? He's, he's the kind of supervisor you would love to have. I mean, he will go out of his way to kind of make sure he supports, you know, his students. He'll give you the time, whatever you need, he'll give it to you. And interestingly, he was an atheist. So we, whenever we talked, he, we would have discussions. And then he just out of the blue, he'd ask me a question about, do you know this guy? Or do you know what, what Islam says about this? And I'm like, I don't know, right? So <laughs> I, I, not, he was a Cambridge graduate, right? So just when you talk to him about chemical engineering, you already feel so dumb next to him, right? That's one thing. But in addition to that, um, he's asking me about Islam and I have zero clue about Islam, right? So I feel more dumb than I ever did in my entire life. So that kind of nucleated uh, a curiosity. Okay, what is Islam? What 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 does this religion mean? You know, what? Why do I pray? All these things I started going into right. And uh, at the time, you know, there was this big hype about some of these weekend seminars like Al Maghrib Institute, or Kothar Institute, Sabil Institute. So I started kind of going into these, and it was an amazing kind of you know shift in my worldview. Um, I was this very you know limited guy who had very minimal understanding about theology hadith quran not, none of that whatsoever just you know this hardcore scientist within a stuck in a scientific mindset and then slowly as i started going to these courses my worldview started really expanding and then through that journey i also encountered of course you have these you know different sects and all of this stuff that come into the equation so i kind of had to navigate through that but by the end of my PhD, I was 100% sure that chemical engineering is no longer what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I was 100% sure. It was not something I wanted to sit behind on a computer and just you know crunch numbers and just study chemistry and chemicals and all of that. It was not something that just sat well with me. So what happened was um, I started, as soon as I finished my PhD, I literally did everything I could to kind of go out and study, right? Now, bear in mind, I, I'm by the time you're 25, after a PhD, because remember, I went straight from a bachelor's to a PhD. By the time I finished my PhD, I had no working experience. I had to work. I had to become independent. So I start off with, you know, basic jobs here and there. Um, I was first a, a postdoc researcher. And that, you know, even re reified this idea in me that I don't want to do chemical engineering. So I was a postdoc in chemical engineering at a university in Abu Dhabi in the UAE. Then I was a school teacher for six months, high school teacher, so I taught physics and chemistry. And then from there, I went on to freelancing, did private tutoring. And then alhamdulillah, through that experience, I then got a job as an assistant professor uh, of the natural sciences. So I teach physics, chemistry, and math at my university. And then during this time, and even now, what I always wanted to do was make sure I was always in touch with the sheikh or I was doing a course or studying theology in some shape, in some form. Initially, I was at Evanston Academy. Then, alhamdulillah, I, I got in touch with Sheikh Ali Laraki, who's who is the founder of Neem Institute. And then from him, I studied Ash'ari theology in particular. 
And then from there, I'm, I'm kind of now doing this uh, very, very considered program that Abalagh Academy launched. It's, a, it's an Alamiya program meant for professionals. So I want to try and get that as well to kind of just have that under my belt. And um, through this uh, development, right, through this development, I really gained an interest in the interaction of science and theology, right? Initially, initially, when I first started learning about Islam, I was so psyched in, you know, in tafsir. I was just so psyched about it. I just used to love finding tidbits in the Quran here and there. You know, um, individuals like Numan Khan really kind of instill that in your, uh, in your heart, you know, that, that finding these nuggets, these gems in the Quran. So I was very, very curious about the Quran. But then theology kind of captivated my heart. And I now mostly focus on metaphysics, theology, aqidah, whatever name you want to give it. So that, that became a, a huge interest of mine. Now, of course, when I, when I started going into this area, I didn't want to leave my scientific science uh, behind, uh, behind me completely. I wanted to see how I could use this and incorporate this both in my research and as, as well as my personal development. And through there, I started you know, seeking potential opportunities to do maybe a second PhD or another program to kind of see how I could interface Islam and the natural sciences, right? Because today, particularly, this is a big question. In light of the atheism, theism, dialogue, this is a you know, big, big area. And what happened was, um, uh, interestingly, is I stumbled upon a program that the University of Edinburgh started back in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. And they had a program called the uh, Masters of Science in Philosophy of Science and Religion, which was like, whoa, this is perfect for me. Perfect for me, right? And I just, you know, got onto it. It was my opportunity. Uh, now, that program, uh, it was great, but it was very Christian-centric. And so it, it made me feel that, you know, and, and as I started developing more and more into this territory, I started reading more books, you know, uh, in science and religion. I realized that the, the field is predominantly very Christian-centric. You can find books on Islam and, uh, Islam and science by Muslim thinkers. There's no doubt about it, right? But these are a handful. You're talking about 20, maybe 30 books in total in comparison to the thousands written by Christian thinkers, philosophers, theologians, scientists, and what have you. And so that really kind of, you know, um, uh, gave me this idea, hang on, maybe this is a niche that you could look into. And there are many fields now within Islam and science. So you have bioethics, how do developments in medicine impact our fiqh, for instance? How does teleportation impact, you know, our understanding of human nature? Um, quantum physics raised a lot of questions. So how does God interact with the world, right? All these cool questions were coming up. And I just went in and took a nosedive into the most controversial question possible, which is Islam and evolution. So that was that was something that I started, and it was a project I started looking into about four, four and a half years ago. Uh, and also, this was one particular track that I was interested in. But another track that I was interested in was atheism, because I do feel that atheism, particularly in its modern manifestations, is you know becoming a, a very important narrative that Muslims have to deal with. Uh, both academically as well as on an apologetic level. So I, 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 tr I try to you know, connect these three areas, philosophy, science, and my religion, and try to come up with research that would help me in my academic progression, but also would allow me to help the wider Muslim audience in terms of developing uh, an idea of how to navigate these, these, these challenges and these concepts. So in the past few years, I've been publishing mainly on Islam and evolution. I have a book coming out on the topic this year, inshallah. And uh, I have also have a book on Islam and atheism just to try and capture the main areas of contention between these two domains. 
And yeah, that's that's how it all started. So it was um, it's, it's it was a it's definitely been an interesting journey, uh, and I don't know where the future is going to take me. But that's how it all kind of kicked off. Alhamdulillah, um, during this uh, path, I've you know I've I've been very lucky, very very lucky in that I have met and discussed topics with so many people around the world who I would have never been able to get access to. You know, like amazing people in their fields. You know, the seer experts, theological experts. You know. Um, uh, I even had a chance to speak to you know people I look up to, Sheikh Yasaqadi. He's one of so there were four scholars that impacted me personally in my development as a Muslim. One of them was Sheikh Yasaqadi, and even I'm, I'm the fact that I have the opportunity of teaching a course that I developed on Islam and Evolution alongside him. This is currently running right now. For me, that's an amazing achievement, and I feel so happy about that that I'm actually teaching besides my icon. Right, this is one of my favorite icons in the world. So alhamdulillah, it's been a very fantastic journey and I, I hope that many more things will come up inshallah. Inshallah, I just want to say, you know, um, the fact that you've said all of that, it makes me feel as if you've achieved so much in such little time as well, subhanAllah. Um, and you know, you mentioned you, uh, you studied international sciences and that's a combination of physics, chemistry and biology, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, is that quite a common degree or is that a, com a common choice to study in terms of science as a whole? Usually someone picks straight physics or oh right yeah yeah so my my field is actually i mean like my degree is in chemical engineering so okay. my bachelor's degree is in chemical engineering my phd however is a combination of chemistry and chemical engineering and the okay. reason why that is is because the project that i was looking at was a combination of the two so i had one supervisor in the chemical engineering department and one in nanoporous materials from the chemistry department so that's why it was a combination of the two but i teach okay. physics, chemistry and math generally those are because Believe it or not, and I think this is going to surprise a lot of people, in chemical engineering, you only have 5% chemistry. The, the rest is physics and math. Interesting. <laughs> should they change the name then? <laughs> it, should, it should be called process engineering, but I don't know why they stuck to chemical engineering. There we Sounds go. more flashy. I was going to ask you, um, this is probably the deep question to ask straight away off the bat of what we've already what you've discussed, discussed already. Um, but in terms, of, um, in terms of the word science itself, like what? What are the or What are the underpinnings of what science constitutes? Like, what is it? If you were to, I know it sounds like it. I know this is a, something that's a very uh, comprehensive question. But I mean, if you were to summarize it, what is science, and what is is it a sword? Is, is foundations? Right. Okay. So science is. If 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 I were to give a very tentative definition, just to get the conversation going, I would define it as follows: It is a process to study the natural world, right? So the natural world means what? Trees, planets, you know, your, the car that you drive, the sand, geological processes, earth formation, all of that is part of the natural world. It is a study of the natural world, right? So that's what it, as a general definition, what I would start as. Now, science works on a few basic principles to get it going, right? What we wanna do in science is we wanna capture um, explanations that govern phenomena that we see in nature, okay? So, for example, the stars, you know, uh, we see them move from our vantage point. So, what does that mean? Are the stars moving or is are we moving and what have you? So, we have developed, we've, we've been able to use the stars to come up with some kind of a calendar, right? Or to come, uh, come up with some kind of a cosmological system to explain, okay, this is known as that territory, this is known as that territory, we can even use the, the sun and the moon to be able to approximate the number of days in a year, right? To calculate, you know, when it's going to be 
midday, when it's going to be evening, when it's going to be morning, and what have you. So science is about explaining phenomena, right? It's coming up with general explanations of how things work. And use and be able to determine possible equations that govern that phenomena. So, for for instance, all of us at at high school, we are all accustomed to Newton physics, right? Newtonian physics, and um, so the the formula that I think everyone hates to see on the on the on the whiteboard, F is equal to ma, force is equal to mass times acceleration. That's a basic formula that governs a lot of phenomenon in the world, right? Your car works on that basis. Uh, objects falling work on that basis. Even some, you know. Um, interesting snooker you know ball dynamics work on that basis so newtonian mechanics works in a lot of places right but we just learned very simplified versions of it in our high school so that's what science does it, uh, it comes up with theories and equations to explain uh, the natural world around us now you said what are its basic principles so the basic principles of science are simply uh i would say two things okay it, it's basic so there are two fundamental principles of science one is called temporal uniformity. Now that sounds like a fancy word. It's really not, okay? It's really not. It just simply means that whenever we make an observation, okay, and we keep making that same observation when we do the same event, we generalize that, okay, this is a general law that holds. So for instance, I have an object. Now if I drop that object, it will go down, okay? And if I drop that object a thousand times, it'll always go down, okay? So that what I can conclude from that is whenever I drop an object, it goes down. And so when that law is extrapolated, I then assume that all these past observations that I have had, all these past observations will hold now and in the future. So that's what I mean by temporal uniformity, that observations that we have observed in the past will hold on in the present and in the future. If science does not believe in that presumption, science cannot begin. It cannot get off the ground. And the reason why that is, is because if there is no consistency in nature, you cannot extract a general law. So temporal uniformity is a very important principle of science. The other principle is this idea of spatial uniformity. It's the same thing as temporal uniformity, but the, the, the concept applies to space. If I drop this pen, in UAE, in UK, in China, in Japan, in the US, that, that observation must be the same everywhere. Again, if we had localized observations that were not consistent, we cannot generalize that to a law, or some kind of a theory. And so generally speaking, we generally hold the idea that when we make an observation in one place, we hold it to be true everywhere else. Both of these principles rely are, are basically known as induction. You take a few observations, you generalize a law, and you hold that it will, it will maintain itself in the future as well as in other places. This is the fundamental basis and foundation of modern science. So that, that, that would be my way of explaining it. Interesting, interesting. I do appreciate that. I mean, the idea of it having uniformity, uniformity that concept itself, um, would it be okay to presume that science and using science as a method could be could be beneficial, could be useful, and it has been useful um, for centuries, and if not more than that? But could you also argue that people you could use that method or these terms in a way that is biased or wrong? 
Okay, right. So, okay, right. So, you, are, are you specifically talking about this in the atheism theist vibe, or just generally speaking? Just generally speaking, because I mean, uh, here's my my very limited understanding. This is what I, this is what I, I I often say. A good host is someone who plays devil's advocate. But I'm at a point where I have to play devil's advocate because I don't know any better. Okay, um, right, my, right. my my specialization is economics. So we do something like econometric analysis, where we get a range of factors and we put them in models, and these models. Um, there's always going to be an error uh, attributed at the end of the equation, which yeah. which will go for variable factors that we never we never knew that could have affected, but we wouldn't know any better. I mean, yeah. I'm just saying, like, would, are there instances where the scientific method does not capture every me the, the whole entire meaning of something, or are there yeah. things that are missing that could be used for against like you're biased and whatnot? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I I definitely agree with that. I think that science. Um, no one equation, no one theory is ever going to be exhaustive, right? And as you correctly said, every scientific theory does have an error resolution to it, right? So if a scientific theory is governing only certain circumstances, it, can, it is only applicable in that domain, right? Um, to take something out of its domain and apply it to another context may be one way of misappropriating science. So, um, I mean, uh, to, to, to think of a, an example off the top of my head, um, you can have individuals who will take an experiment. So there's this very famous experiment, right? Uh, that says, uh, you know, when we do this experiment, we have 99% efficiency, right? 99% efficiency. But that 99% efficiency is only governed by the apparatus, by the circumstances by the conventions in where that study took place. If the variables of those studies changed, then you can no longer say that that 99% is applicable everywhere, right? That would be one example of stating that. Could you, could you also, um, sorry, could you say like, for example, you know when you have them, uh, the products that you use to clean bacteria and it says yep. cleans 99.99% bacteria, is that something where they've used some sort of, they've done some testing or is it, is it something similar yeah. to that or is that? Of course, yeah. So I mean, those 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 chemicals—they're assuming that you will use them in a certain pressure, in a certain humidity environment, in a certain you know temperature environment, right? But if you change, so because a an average household, which is where these are going to be used, the temperature is generally around twenty-five centigrade. It's air pressure around you. Humidity's level will vary between twenty to seventy percent. It's applicable to that range. But now, all of a sudden, let's just say you're working at an environment that's a thousand degrees. That bleach won't work at a thousand degrees. It'll most likely evaporate. It won't be effective at all, right? So these things are limited to certain parameters that need to be taken into consideration before you go applying it everywhere. So definitely, I feel that science does have its respective limits. But this doesn't mean to say that scientists themselves generally are deceptive. They make it very clear at the back in the fine print. You just got to read very carefully, right? That this is, of course, controlled substance that you need to be careful of. But um. And now you mentioned about how it's misused, right? Or how it's used wrongly. Now, this is re more relevant to our, you know, some of the debates that we have between theists and atheists, right? Where you, t you jump onto a scientific connection or an idea, and then you make it as if it's the philosophy of the world that's going to pretty much rule out theists or religion folks, or religious folks all across the world. The most famous example, right? Uh, actually, there are two big examples in the more recent context that we live in. You have one individual, Dr. Lawrence Krauss, right? Famous physicist. He wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing, right? So he, he uses the science of the day 
to say that the universe literally came out of nothing. Literally came out of nothing, right? We're not realizing that that is now, it has, of course, there's, there may be some science behind it, but is it philosophically sound? Is that argument philosophically sound, right? So I believe that scientists sometimes who have no philosophical training make sometimes very absurd statements. This is one of them. I don't want to get into the specifics of how he was wrong because people have done that. I'm just using this as an example. And another issue is, I mean, this is a more, of course, hostile conversation or a more sensitive conversation, which is the idea of evolution, that somehow evolution undermines all religion, right? Evolution equals atheism, right? So people like Richard Dawkins kind of put this in front of religious folks' faces. Aha, evolution is true. Your religion is false, right? Again, that is taking a scientific theory, turning into a grand narrative, right, where it has philosophical issues when you do that, right? And again, the problem here is when a scientific theory is being raised into a philosophical maxim, you know, a philosophical ideology. And that's when you get misappropriation by atheists. Even people like who are on the atheist side of things recognize this is an error. Michael Ruse, who's a well-known, uh, well, he's kind of an agnostic, but he's, he's definitely you know, somebody who's researched a lot on the atheist side of things. I mean, he makes that very clear that this new atheism movement, at least some of their arguments, are very um, babyish activities and arguments, right? They don't, they're not really substantial because they're very simplistic. So I think definitely science gets abused by um, atheists. But I, I want to make sure I, I, I add this caveat. It also gets abused by theistic folks. I, I, I think that both sides of the coin abuse science. Yeah. I mean... As I mean, the topic itself is very vast. It's it's a very, it's it's a sort of topic where you you probably prefer to go deep into something particular, um, for example, like atheism or scientism, and and try to understand how they as a group are, because they obviously believe in science. Just like, but the thing is, obviously, we understand Muslims believe in the scientific scientific method and how we could use it. And Muslims were pioneers, would you argue, in scientific objective uh, studies and, and building knowledge. Would that be a fair statement to make? Yeah, that, I would say that would be a genuine fair statement to make. I mean, Muslims have never had a problem with doing science, right? There's no problem with doing science. They may have an issue, though, when science is converted to a worldview or an ideology. That's when you get with the word that you use, scientism. So Muslims are completely pro-science, but they're not pro-scientism. And the distinction between them can blur um, sometimes, and we need to be careful in making sure we don't cross to the wrong uh, or, or go too far, go too far, too far, far. Interesting. I mean, could you, I mean, like, for example, um, a very, very basic example I can think of is when we have statistical inference where we make decisions and, 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 and judgments based on an inference to assume for the whole population of something. Yeah. Um, and could you argue that science, I mean, Understanding every single factor and understanding every single you know nooks and crannies and everything is is an impossible task um, in informing beliefs and judging to actual you know ideologies from it to to go from something mm. like using this, science to then actually making lumping like big statements of disbelief in God and Allah Jalla wa'ala. I mean, yeah, do you think that this, is a problem? This is this is definitely a good question. So I mean. A very easy example to explain this with is, is sociological surveys, right? So when people do a survey of a community, right? So they'll say, oh, we interviewed 30,000 people. Out of 30,000 people, 99% are atheists, right? Therefore, people are becoming more, more atheistic. 
I mean, that's that's a claim you can draw from that study, right? But you've got to bear in mind that um, when we look at surveys like this, we have to be careful about something called extrapolation. How far can you take the findings of one study and apply it to the rest of, to the whole world, right? Or to the the big grand claim that you're making? Okay, so that's generally why I am personally a little bit skeptical when it comes to sociological surveys. Not that they're not meaningful. I want to make that clear. Social sociologists are not unmeaningful, but they're definitely limited in the sense that what it's a descriptive approach to things, right? You are you are describing a certain locality with certain people inside, and you are describing their belief systems. To then take a description of an entity or of a particular domain, and then now use it as a prescription for this claim, that's a bit of a false move, I would say. That's a bit of a false move. So we have to be very careful in making sure that when we do make inferences, that they are well substantiated. But um, claiming that, okay, we did this 30,000 people study and now the, the whole world's getting more atheistic is far-fetched. Because if you think about it, even from a, from a mathematical point of view, there are about 7 billion people in the world. 30,000 divided by 7 billion is a very incredibly small number. It, it's, it's meaningless in terms of the significance of the overall population. Interesting, interesting. I mean, um, would you argue um, that the average Muslim living in the West, whether that be the UK and Europe or America um, and so on and, so and whatnot, um, living in these areas where science is put on a very high pedestal in a, in a, as a belief system in some ways, for example, atheism and whatnot, would you argue that um, there has to be, I mean, what would be required for an average Muslim living in these lands to pursue in science? Should they understand the, the, the limitations of science, if there are limitations, of course, what are those limitations? Mm. Where do they draw the line? Because you could easily, for example, when I was doing, um, when I was studying philosophy at A-level, uh, I was told, you know, don't study philosophy. You know, it's going to cause you doubts in your religion. Um, Alhamdulillah, I didn't do that for me. Um, in fact, it increased my conviction. Um, but for, for scholars, still advise not to study philosophy. And, and likewise, but I also argue that people don't put the same pressure on science. Um, maybe there's a reason for that. But I'm just thinking, where do we draw the line? Because th there must be a fine line between where we understand what science can do for us and what science can't do for us. Right. Okay. So, so, I, so th this is a, a compounded question. So I would say on the one, so you've asked one question in terms of how should we receive science when we go out and study it, but also how does it work in light of, if you compare it to philosophy, which is generally considered a taboo subject by some scholars, right? Yeah, stay away from that domain. Um, okay, so I would say that in you have to understand the world that we live in, right? The idea of being a specialist in all sciences is a bygone era. There is no such thing as a specialist in hundred fields anymore. That that concept just does not exist today, right? You can become a, a hyper specialist in just one part of the ear. That's how specialized we have become today, right? So you can write books and books and books on just one part of the ear. That's how specialized we are. So the idea that we can master all the sciences, I mean, that we have to be wary of that, that's no longer possible. On the other hand, however, we shouldn't be completely ignorant of these wider surfaces and these other topics that, that are relevant for us in terms of guiding our worldview and impacting our personal lives, okay? So we have to kind of navigate a middle path between these two extremes, complete negligence and ignorance versus hyper-specialization that you forget about everything else. We need to have a middle path, right? So in my humble opinion, what needs to happen is that 
I don't see a problem with people specializing in these arenas, be it science or philosophy or theology, what have you, right? I don't think they are problems in of themselves. The problem only comes is when we become so specialized, we begin to neglect the other fields. So for instance, I mean, you guys have heard it as well, right? Sometimes, I mean, I, I've seen it. I have seen it in front of my eyes. People have left Islam because of science. People have left Islam because of philosophy. Both are the cases, right? I have seen people who have rejected Islam because they believe Dawkins is right. Or they read a physics book and they believe the universe came out of nothing. Or they believe that evolution disproves Islam, right? All of these things are scientific. They're not philosophical in nature, right? Philosophy has its own hosts of issues, right? Now, the thing is, I feel the, the core problem, seriously, the core issue in all of this is not having grounding in theology. Now, what is, this, what is theology? Basically, in, in, in very simplistic terms, theology is creed, your doctrine, right? As Muslims, there are certain things that make us Muslim, right? X, Y, Z positions, right? So when you study your creed and you understand the substantiation behind that creed, that gives you some kind of an anchor to navigate the world around you, okay? When you have that, no matter what is thrown at you, you can kind of make sense of that conversation, okay? When theology is gone, your anchor is gone. The ship is going to go everywhere, left, right, center, has no direction, has no clue where it's going. But if you have an anchor, at least that grounds you a little bit, right? Now, I'm not saying that theology is a bulletproof vest. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it has a stronger shot in equipping you with the mental faculty, with the mental tools you need to be engaged the contemporary questions that are impacting Muslims today, both from science and from philosophy. So this is where I would see the balance kicking in, having a solid ground in theology. For me personally, me personally, when I start up, so I, I, this, I'm going to share a personal thing with you, okay? As a Muslim, I was, so I, I told you I was a cultural Muslim, but as a scientist, I did not believe in miracles. I didn't believe in miracles. I didn't believe miracles were possible because I was stuck in a scientific box. I had never heard things like induction. I had never heard th uh, things of philosophy. I mean, I was so ignorant. I was so ignorant. Again, I'm being personally transparent with you. I, I was so ignorant that I didn't even know the difference between psychology and philosophy at one, one point in time. That's how ignorant I was of these other disciplines. I was so stuck in engineering. That was it. That's all I knew. That's, that was my entire reference point, chemical engineering. So when you start studying, I mean, it was really hard for me to get out of this hard science, really hard, and appreciate what things like philosophy and theology tell you. And only when I was able to do that, which I feel, alhamdulillah, has been very helpful in my personal journey, I can now feel that no matter what is thrown at me, I can engage with it with, with, with strength and confidence, no problem whatsoever. So I do believe that having a theological backbone is super important in today's context. Very, very important in today's context. Barakallah fikum for that. One question I have for you is that um, when when a person obviously you said has grounding in theology and, and aqidah and his creedal beliefs and in terms of yeah. Islam, um, sometimes when you go into different things, like for example philosophy or economics, there's always like, yeah. we understand our creed and our aqidah, but there's always an element of how we package it so we understand it and, and we understand it in the words of philosophy or we understand it in the words mm -hmm. of economics. For example, Islam economics is zakat, is zakat is a pillar of Islam, for example. Yep. And so we talk, okay, well, oh, zakat is part of the pillar of Islam. Why don't governments do it and such things? Well, awqaf and these kinds of things. So that we package it in a way we understand the world economy of today. Yeah. When someone wants to pursue scientific studies, uh, scientific you know, degrees based off that, 
And by the way, economics is not a scientific degree, unfortunately, despite it wanting to be scientific. Human science, yeah. Yeah, it, it's trying to it's trying to pursue you know pursue it in a you know in a, in some similar to physics when it isn't really that. But um, how do we then go into form formulating strong creedal groundings in these subject matters without letting the the study itself you know overwhelm us in in disbelief? Well, see, that's where I think that we need to have we need to start having institutionalized centers where we are we are embracing all of these things in one go, right? So you are learning theology on the one hand, you are learning philosophy on the one hand, you are learning science on the one hand, you're learning humanities on the other hand, right? All of these things really solidify a person's understanding of how to navigate the world. I mean, liberal arts, true liberal arts does that. That's what a liberal arts college is supposed to do. It's supposed to equip you with all these tools so no matter what is thrown at you, you can at least engage with that. Now, of course, people can be specialized in their fields, right? There's no doubt about it. You can be the next best, I don't know, engineer, physicist in the world, no problem. But at least do not lose sight of the horizon. That's my argument here. We shouldn't lose sight of the horizon. How do we not lose sight of the horizon? You make sure that people get these exposures earlier on so that they deal with these issues and ideas in safe platforms. And then when they leave the nest, at least they'll be able to engage with that, right? They have to be able to engage with that. I believe what happens, I, the bigger problem that we have is when we neglect stuff, when we neglect or when we hide things under the carpet. So there was a, and this is one example, I'm not gonna mention the institution. I remember one institution, I was giving a talk at about atheism and Islam. Right? How do you navigate the interface of atheism and Islam? And uh, a parent asked me about, uh, about one of my slides. So in my slide, I had pictures of four books that were about ex-Muslims leaving Islam. And the parent says, um, why do you show these books? Because they can influence our kids, right? So um, for, for that parent, that the concern was, why am I giving exposure to these books to kids or, or to teenagers rather, right? Because there were teenagers in the, in the, in the class, in the, in the auditorium. So I, my simple response was because they need to know, even if you do not expose this to them, they will find out online somehow. Right? So I think hiding, hiding this in the carpet or assuming that it just, it's not going to touch my son. It's not going to harm my kids is a bit naive. It is very naive as a parent. So my personally, my son, I, I, I'm not going to do that with him, right? I believe that I want to expose him to all these things. When, of course, as he develops, as he goes along, so that at least he's aware, right? So I definitely believe that having exposure, having uh, multidisciplinary institutions where you get taught philosophy, theology, and natural sciences side by side really equips the, the Muslim today. And I think when you have an absence in those, that's when you get some haywired um, uh, journeys, in my opinion. I mean, that's very profound, Sopano, because a good example of this, for example, is universities themselves. Universities then invite speakers to talk about, you know, the crossover, for example, economics, there's Islamic economics or Islamic finance. And then it, obviously that's your period where you really see the crossover. But are you suggesting that on at an earlier stage when they're younger, like, yeah. you know, early teenagers and want to then look into... Uh, for example, I mean, what would you what would you educate them on in, in terms of would you go through case studies of Islamic scientists who are practicing, who are religious, who are who had, who saw no contradiction? Would you do would you would you encourage them to look at case studies? Would you encourage them to look at role models? How how would it work mm. for you? So for me, what I do is um, I just want to make sure that um, 
So every, everything in the natural world, right? When we study the natural world around us, okay? Um, we have to understand that the, the more deeper and the first question that we need to understand is who is God, right? Once we understand who is God, what he can and cannot do, we can then put scientific understanding against that backdrop. Because, to, and this is, this is an important point that many, I think, people need to realize. If God did not exist, science would not exist. Science depends on there being a being who institutionalizes these laws in the, to begin with, right? If God did not institutionalize, those scientific laws would never exist. So science fundamentally relies on God. It fundamentally relies on God, right? Now, so it, this is the starting point for my, at least my classes that I teach my students. And then when that happens, then we go on a case-by-case -case approach. So we localize this to a particular inquiry. So for example, quantum mechanics, electrons popping in and out of existence, does this undermine God? Does this undermine our understanding that God doesn't know what he's doing? Does, does, that, does that what he do? Now, here's the question. What appears random and things you know, uh, indeterministic to us, things popping in and out of existence, that is what is appearing to us. But does, does that mean that God can control that? Of course he can, right? It's a bit like an animator. He controls all the slides in the movie. And in, from one slide to another, he can make things come into existence. He can remove things into existence. That doesn't mean God doesn't exist, right? So that becomes a, an example of where you see theology in full effect in a scientific conversation. This is just one example, but I'm just sharing this for your for your viewership. This is this is very interesting. I think the concept of instilling tawheed and knowing that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is the one who facilitated for this to happen in the first place. Yeah. Um, Subhanallah. Um, if you if you don't mind, inshallah, uh, we move on to another question. Yeah. What do we do when science, science, uh, and what we know, what we seem to be from Islam, contradicts or co collides with each other? What do we do in situations like that? Is there like a step by step framework or some sort of options we would entertain? For example, consolidation, rejection, um, understanding the limitations of science, uh, mm. understanding what in the Quran can be metaphorically interpreted and what can't be. I mean, where do we have to draw the line when it comes to these situations um, where there is a crossover, or not crossover, sorry, a contradiction or, or a, you know, uh, opposite views? Right. Okay. So I don't think there is like an exact formula you can apply, but these are just some general guidelines that I would suggest to people, right? I would say the first thing is when you're looking at a question in which there is an apparent conflict between Islam and something, the first thing you should do is read right understand what are the diff different opinions out there and then my at least my approach has been identify the extremes because i take that you know the, the the idea that islam is the middle path very seriously we never go to extremes right <clears throat> we never go to extremes so identify what the extremes are categorical rejection categorical acceptance okay so this is now the spectrum this is where the spectrum stands right so now i then see according to my framework my theological framework right where do i fit on the spectrum does that uh, does my theology allow me to reject it accept it maybe have some integration into it that comes with a lot of reading and understanding now unfortunately and this is just the nature of of this discussion the problem is that a lot of these concepts sometimes um are interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary rather right so for instance, let me. I'll just give this as an example. Look at the you know the, the idea of quantum mechanics as 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 a basic example, right? 
we have, uh, and I'm not trying to undermine anybody here. I'm just using examples to convey a point. There are some, uh, you know, religious scholars who know they're, you know, they're the top dons, the top dons of their Islamic sciences, but they won't have a clue about the science. Now, if they, if you ask them with a scientific question, they may not have the answer. Okay. Likewise, if you go to a scientist and ask a question, they may be the top don in physics or evolution or biology or whatever have you, but they may not have the religious backing. So then how do you start navigating? And this is why it comes back to my initial point, having exposure to theology, philosophy, and sciences together as a compounded education project. In the absence of those, this becomes very difficult because now what you have, I mean, inevitably what the lay person has to do is defer this to an authority. Now it becomes a matter of who you trust. Do you trust X, Y, Z, or ABC? That's what it comes down to. But if you have the equipment, if you know your Arabic, if you know your philosophy, know your theology, at least you have some grounding to be able to navigate this conversation. Of course, in light of conversations with experts, right? So this is what I would say is a general approach, not a specific you know, formula that is applicable to everywhere, anytime. A general approach, right? Now, can I share one um, anecdote in, in, light of, in light of this, Asim? Would you, would you allow me to do that? Yeah? Okay, all right. So here's an example of where I find where the conversation, particularly of Islam and science, can get a little bit skewed, right? And these are extreme examples, but I think they, they prove my point. So there's this, a very good friend of mine. He's from Iraq, right? Um, and we, we met while we were at the University of Nottingham. So he told me, there was this very big scholar that he knew in his town, right? Very big scholar. Like he knew his stuff inside out, fiqh, hadith, Quran, whatever have you. And uh, the question came about airplanes, right? Airplanes. And so the individual asked him, so how do airplanes work? Like what does Islam have to say about airplanes? So he thought about it. And that individual said, all airplane flights, all airplane flights must go through Jerusalem. So think about that, right? If you're flying from London to Edinburgh, your plane flight must go through Jerusalem first. If you're flying from, I don't know, uh, what's it called? The North, from Canada to the US, your flight must go through Jerusalem first, right? Now, what was his rationale for that? His rationale was when the Prophet went to the heavens, Isra wal Mi'raj, he first went to Jerusalem. He took that as a, a sufficient epistemic warrant as, as in, uh, basically as, as, as evidence that anything that goes and flies must go through Jerusalem. So this is an individual, right, who knows his Islamic stuff, but on the science stuff, completely off the mark, completely. Now here's the opposite example. So I think some, of, some people may know this example because it's very well known, but um, there were a few scientists, right, who, who tried to read the Quran, right, with a scientific scope, and they believed jinn, so whenever the Quran mentions jinn, it's not referring to the jinn that, you know, these, these demon-like entities that we know of. The jinn actually refers to bacteria. They believe that the jinn was bacteria. That's what they believe. So you see, you have two extremes, Like right? You have a person looking into religious stuff without any clue how to, how to navigate that discourse, and then the opposite as well. So extremes of those can be easily uh, navigated if we have institutionalized centers where a bunch of these or all these things are carefully crafted to young students at a young age to develop confidence and be able to navigate complex conversations. Barakallahu um, Shaib. I think 
I think that's it for today in terms of the questions. I can't think of anything else within the agenda. But uh, I think we're going to move on now on to the question and answers from the viewers. Just a kind of reminder for the viewers, uh, Barakallah Fikram for all of our viewers, actually. Thank you very much for tuning in. Um, if you have any questions as well, we are going to be sharing those questions now for the next 50 to 25 minutes, inshallah. And uh, hopefully Shraib will be answering these questions, inshallah. Um, Shraib, like I said, it was an absolute honor having you today. Um, oh, alhamdulillah, the honor is all mine. Thank you very much to Roots yeah. Academy for inviting me. Alhamdulillah. Thanks to Hisham for this. <laughs> alhamdulillah. Um, okay. Let's see. Show is it normal? Is it normal to transition from one field to another? I believe this was based on your academic background, or is this to do with right. perhaps your Islamic moving towards your Islamic background as well? Actually, in fact, it could be a range of things. Right. Okay. Is it normal to transition from one field to another? No. Uh, it's it's it, so I, I'm saying this in academia. It's very difficult now. Right. Mm. 30, 40 years ago, if you had a degree in physics, you could hop on to philosophy and vice versa. I mean, it was much more porous back then. Today, it is exceedingly difficult because of heavily institutionalized infrastructures in place. So in academia, you can only teach or be in a department of a certain subject if you have a PhD in that subject, right? So if I have a PhD in philosophy, I can only teach philosophy. If I wanted to teach engineering or sciences, I have to get a PhD in science. That's how it works, right? Whereas previously, it wasn't like that. There was a little bit more porosity between the disciplines. So my journey from transitioning to the sciences to philosophy and theology is, has been exceedingly difficult. And I mean, I'm going to be frank here. It's also a career killer because, and here's why, uh, I'm in a science college, but my publications are all to do with science and religion, which is a humanities discourse. It's not really a scientific discourse. So when it comes to now applying for promotion or getting another job, it is very unlikely that a science college will hire me because my publications are not in science. And also it is impossible or very unlikely that a humanities department will hire me because my pub I, have, I have no PhD in either philosophy or theology. So that makes it a bit, bit of a wrecking ball. How do you navigate that discussion? So definitely transitioning from one field to another in academia is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. That's to answer the first question. With regards to the second question, credibility, yes. I mean, of course, people uh, question my credibility all the time. Mostly, however, this is on social media rather than uh, in academia. In academia, what gives you strength as an academic is your publication record. If you are publishing, that means you have a strong publication record. So alhamdulillah, in the past few years, I've been able to gather a lot of publications, uh, a book, a few articles, you know, in presses, Cambridge University Press, Rutledge, these are high-ranking, impacting uh, publications. So alhamdulillah, in academic stances, definitely. In terms of <clears throat> my credibility as a theologian, of course, I am not a seminary student, right? Uh, sorry, I have not gone through a traditional seminary track. So obviously, there's going to be questions about how I'm approaching the theological discussion. And it is for this reason, I always stick to ulama because I throw my ideas at them. And on top of that, I am doing an alamiya program to get that qualification under my belt to show people that I have that background if it needs be to be questioned. Because this is the, the day and age, right? If you want to claim certain thing as a certain candidate, you have to have that background, that training. So alhamdulillah, I've been very fortunate enough that in terms of theology, I was trained by, I mean, one of, at least I feel he's one of the best sheikhs out there, Sheikh Ali. He really helped me excel in Ash'ari theology, really, really good scholar in terms of navigating that those nuanced discussions. So I was very thankful to that. But now I'm doing a full-scale uh, Alimir program just to kind of get the other sciences under my belt. But I personally 
and this is my my personal uh, preference. I really dislike fiqh. <laughs> I find it so boring. I prefer kalam and I stick to that. But usul hadith, usul fiqh is just so out of my my research interest. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's nice to be honest. Alhamdulillah. I was going to say for our viewers as well. Dr. Shaib has uh, is recently published a book. He's an author of. Uh, um, of a book called enti- titled Atheism and Islam, a Contemporary Discourse And you've also got something coming up soon um, With Routledge on Islam and Evolution as well For our viewers yeah. listening um, I was actually going to mention that point you mentioned About the fact that I mean, would, I would actually ask another question As a counter question The person who studies Islamic knowledge From traditional seminaries Like an Alamiya program And has already done some studies in For example, uh, your background Or economics or anything really That's from the secular standard um, you could you find an opening there where you could go to a new you could create a new field if anything there, there is you know I wouldn't say the word create but innovate and go into a new field where you can kind of combine both and look into history and look into you know the into the crossovers would that be uh, you know a good follow up you know could that be possible actually yeah and in fact that is happening even now like mashallah I am surrounded by ulama who come from a you know very strong alamiya program right. And they're now entering universities. So we have, mm. I, I know one Alamiya student who's now doing a historic, he's actually writing a book, a historical sketch of Dar al-Ulums in, um, in India, the history of India, Hindustan, right? So that's what he's doing, right? Uh, I have another um, sheikh. He's the, 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 the founder of Fatma Elizabeth, right? He's an Alamiya program student, but he has degrees in education. He has a degree in Abrahamic religions, right? So he's kind of expanded his corpus and his background skill set. And now he's, you know, he's running these madrasas. He's also researching as a historian about the, at what, at least what is claimed to be probably the first Muslim convert in UK, Fatima Elizabeth herself. So he's doing that as a historian, right? That's his training. He's, he's a historian, right? And that's just not him. We have Dr. Mansoor Ali. He's again, uh, you know, a seminary student. He's at Cardiff University. He's actually the PC supervisor of the first person that I mentioned. I don't mention him because I think he doesn't want to be mentioned. But um, actually, I'll mention him. Dr. Haroon. That's his name, right? That's his name, Dr. Haroon. So he was a student of Dr. Mansur Ali. Now, Dr. Mansur Ali is doing top-level stuff in terms of bioethics and its relationship to Islamic jurisprudence. We have Dr. Rafaqat, who is the founder of Al-Balagh Academy, who is doing the same thing, medical developments in light of fiqh. So I personally believe that the new generation academics are going to be really strong because they're going to come from both sides of the story. They're going to have that strong alamiya backbone and they're going to have that strong Western you know, institutional backbone. And together, that, that pollination will be so fruitful for the university discourse. We even have individuals, and uh, Molana Abbas Ahsan, right? He's, a, he's, he's an amazing guy, right? He is actually looking at, um, he, again, Alamiya trained, right? He's a teacher in, in his seminary as well, mashallah. He's very experienced, right? He is doing something called, um, uh, um, in very simple terms, philosophy of religion. That's what he's doing, right? And there's a new area in philosophy of religion called paraconsistent logic. It's very new, very new in terms of as an academic inquiry. He is, as far as my understanding goes, one out of two people in the entire world who is looking at Islamic thought in light of paraconsistent logic in the entire world. I mean, so this is the kind of caliber that we have, right? We have also Sheikh Usman Ali, who is, uh, not only is he an Alamiya student, he's also, uh, I think, half nearly completing his PhD in hematology, right? 
He is the most, one of the most well-versed people in Islam and evolution that you could ever find. He's read the literature inside out. So I personally believe that that, that idea of going from an Alamiya program to this you know, westernized or institutionalized discourse is definitely a step in the right direction without a shadow of doubt, right? Without a shadow of doubt. And what's very interesting is that people who are going in these trajectories, at least from, from what I gathered from them, is that they want to see reforms, at least some kind of partial reforms in the seminaries. Because a seminary system uh, is basically a one-track system. So the same thing goes whether you want to be an imam, an academic, a chaplain, or what have you. So Dr. Haroon is even thinking of ideas like maybe compartmentalizing or reforming the Almiya program for different tracks because all these different tracks need different skill sets. If you are sure you want to be a chaplain, what you need is not the next level kalam books or the next level aqidah books that are like so dense, they take you a year to complete. You don't necessarily need to know that. As a chaplain, you need to do with pastoral care and other things like that. Things that are much more valuable in that particular role, right? So we, the idea of having an integrated curriculum that advances everybody's needs, but is multi-tracking is I think a phenomenal idea. So this is coming from them. This is coming from seminary people. And I find that remarkable that we have these amazing people at the forefront who come from those systems and are trying to make systemic and really positive changes. Me, I'm the opposite. I'm coming from the Western and I'm trying to get into the seminary systems. <laughs> I think I think both are fantastic. I mean, even like you mentioned one of your role models, Yasser Qadli, he... I think he did engineering. I think it was biochemical engineering. Chemical engineering as well, yeah. And he went to Medina. So I think, you know, that 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 particular portion there was was truly amazing. I think, subhanAllah, that, I really appreciate that you that you answered that in such a beautiful way. And I think our viewers would appreciate that too. Um, let's move on to another question, inshallah. Madathir um, is asking a lot of questions, mashallah. He says, um, what value... To metaphysical truths, what what value does metaphysical truths have in science? Does science dismiss these claims? Good question. Oh, okay. This is a bit of a. Um, you can make this question very complicated. That's why I need, I'm trying to think of how to make this as easy as possible. Okay. So, um, in science, right, every scientific theory makes a few assumptions. Okay, about how the natural world is. Okay. Take quantum mechanics as an example. Okay, take quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics has at least six different interpretations. Each one may result in different metaphysical implications. So for instance, the Copenhagen interpretation, in very simple terms, believes that fundamentally, the basic atoms and the structures of the universe are indeterministic. They pop in and out of existence. Yes, very chancy, very poppy, very random. Right? That is one interpretation. The other interpretation is that actually doesn't exist. It's not really fundamentally, you know, chancy and disorderly. None of that is true. Our equations are just not well equipped enough to see what's happening behind the scenes, right? So we have two different explanations. So this is known as the Bohmian uh, interpretation, right? Now, in the Copenhagen interpretation, if we follow that, we believe that fundamentally we live in an indeterministic universe. What do I mean by indeterministic? that things do not work like clockwork. When you have one cause, it may have multiple effects. An electron could be here, 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 here. It doesn't behave in a very predictable pattern or rather in a determinable pattern. It's very indeterminable. So uh, for those of you who do A-level chemistry, it, it's, it's for this reason why 
When you study the SPDF shells, they're called electron clouds. If you don't get that, that's absolutely fine. This is for the A-level chemistry students out there, right? So that's that. Now, if you believe in the Bowman equation, you believe that fundamentally, yes, it is clockwork. It's just our equations don't fit the bill, right? So here we have two different theories with different metaphysical implications, different metaphysical implications. So now the question is, do you start off from the science and their metaphysics, or do you start from God and his metaphysics? That's the question, right? So my personal opinion is, you understand God, understand the metaphysical truths that come out of it, and then see what works from each scientific equation or theory. And that's the best way to go. Because if you try to develop philosophical or theological systems based on interpret interpretations of scientific phenomena, you are very tentative to that particular inter interpretation. Whereas our starting point needs to be that no matter what science throws at us, we know that God does it. We know that God does it. How he does it, we don't know, but God does it. So when you start from the top-down approach, you can then see exactly how all these theories and scientific data fit together. If you do it other way around, you have very tentative and very you know, pro probable theological foundations and, and maybe even difficult uh, uh, foundations. Wallahu alam. Barakalafikum for that. Um, I mean, it's slightly off topic, but to do with that question, if you were to yeah. go do the top-down approach, um, yeah. Like for example, when the Quran talks about how the moon is a reflector of light and the sun is the yeah. one that gives off light itself, which is what can be gathered by the Quran verses, could that could obviously if you have top down approach, you will appreciate by observing that and you'll appreciate yeah. and it'll increase your iman actually, in fact. Of course. And do yeah. you think having top down approach would be good for your faith in terms of you won't you won't jeopardize your faith in that way? So here's the difference. I believe both are necessary, right? Um mm. because you, you've got to bear in mind a lot of people are not going to be philosophical people. Not every Muslim needs to be the next best theologian or the philosopher, right? Allah has designed the universe and has put the Quran in a certain way where the average average person can look at you know, the world around and say, mm. SubhanAllah, wow. Okay? Mm. That's not a propositional claim. There's no argument there. But that effect is enough for a lot of people to believe in God, right? Mm. Yeah. Not every proof for God has to be an argument, okay? Mm. So I don't believe one approach is the better approach. My specific response to Mir or Mudassar here was simply this idea that science has loaded metaphysical presumptions, mm. right? In order to, if you want to develop a theology on those presumptions, it is a very tentative way of looking at this particular interpretation. If you want to know whether it is it makes an impact in your metaphysics or not, switch the scope. Go from top down. This is God, his creative powers. How does the science plug in? That is a safer approach and theologically more robust, in my opinion. Barakalafikum. Uh, we have a few more questions. Um, this is kind of sort of related to the previous one. How can we reconcile the concept of the soul and, or consciousness in Islam? If is the mind dependent dependent on the body, or is it independent? What does science in Islam have to say about that? So um, I would say that this is now one of those questions which is. At least for me, this is it's hindering on outside the scope of science. Mm. Science can only tell you pretty much about the brain, the neurons, etc. But it can never tell you about something called first personhood. So in, there is an area in philosophy mm. called philosophy of mind. Mm. And in philosophy of mind, these are well-known yeah. terms, right? Science gives you third person access to your individuality, mm. biologically speaking. 
your brains, your neurons, your circuitry, that's it. But science can never probe into what you are experiencing. So to make that example clearer, if I drink water, a, a doctor can hook up all kinds of probes into me to know where that water is going, what it's doing to my electrochemistry, how it's affecting the neuron signals in my brain. All of that can be tracked, no problem, right? But my actual experience of that, like me, the Shweb individual, how do I experience that? That cannot be probed into no matter what the science is. So the first personhood is scientifically outside of the discussion. Now, some people will disagree. Naturalists will disagree with that. They'll say, nope, science can't probe into that. And that's fine. That's fair enough. But in Islam, the discussion of how the soul or the consciousness is related to the body and all of that, here you have kind of difference of opinions, right? Some say it can be independent. Some say it's a conjunction, etc. But that's a theological debate we don't need to get into. But my point was simply that in science, there's only a limit to how far you can go. But, the, but, the, but there is a part which is categorically, I feel, not possible for science to probe into. And Allah I think you answered this question already, but uh, for the viewers that haven't listened to this, maybe you could explain it in a bit more detail or elaborate on it. Do you think there is a need to create institution, new institutions that combine Islamic seminary programs with modern academic education? If I could answer, I think that's what you've been saying, right? Um, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this brother is, I think, from, if I can guess, that brother is from Turkey, so I think that that name is Jamal. So C is J in Turkey. Mashallah, so, mashallah. Yeah, but Jamal, so I think, yeah, so if you go back to the earlier part of this conversation, my whole, I think, belief system is that there needs to be a combined narrative. Such that, um, not that we have to learn, everyone has to learn physics, biology, chemistry. My point is simply that natural sciences have an exposure to that, doing laboratory, doing all of those things, helps you appreciate the challenges that come with it. And that exposure is enough to kind of get the ground running to explain to you how theology and science could interface with one another. Because one of the things that I find personally is we have people who become super skeptical of science altogether all together right so i have seen muslims of, of course there's a spectrum here i'm just talking about one group of muslims they will reject everything that science has to offer not realizing not realizing that the phones that they have the laptops that is based on science they will reject the covid 19 vaccinations they will reject you know whatever xyz theory that's out there because they believe you know that this is this is this fanciful we don't trust the authority of science but then it's become it's become very inconsistent the very mobile you're using to make your argument relies on science, right? Now, here's an interesting one. I'll share this example, anecdote again, okay? There was this one brother who was working for an institution run by an, I mean, he's a well-known sheikh in the world. I'm not going to mention the sheikh, right? But that individual brother, so uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, Asif, you might appreciate this, right? Uh, I know you're an economic student, but do you know the conservation uh, of energy principle? Do you know that principle, the conservation of energy? Is that due to scarcity? If not, I don't think I do. No, 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 no. So energy in must equal to energy out. Nice. Conservation. That's okay. what that's what conservation means. The same in, the same out, right? Okay. So um, this is a well-known principle in science. So in science, energy can never be destroyed. It always converts. So for example, when I you know smack my hands, the energy in when I clap turn into two things: heat, so my hands are a little bit hotter, and the sound. But the, Energy is never destroyed. It always, get, always gets converted into one form or another, right? But the total energy in must equal to the total energy out, conservation of energy. So now I spoke to this one brother, 
Okay, and he, I found this hilarious, but I, 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 I mean, it was the first time I saw, I was struck, literally I was struck. And this is in my initial days when I was just starting to become uh, a practicing Muslim. And this individual said to me, this is the conservation of energy shik. I'm like, what? How is it shik? He said, only Allah can never be created or destroyed. And I am thinking, subhanAllah, where did you stretch this principle to, right? I mean, even though my Islamic knowledge at the time was not, I mean, it was poor, right? But even I could see Allah could create a universe where the conservation of energy holds. Could he disrupt it anytime? Of course he can, right? But it's a creation. It can never replace God. And you know what's the irony? The irony was he was there, and this is like seven years ago, seven, eight years ago. Back in the days, you know when, uh, what was the, the phone that, that had the keyboards? They were the last keyboard generation. Blueberry? Blueberry? Yes, Blueberry, right, yeah. He had this yeah. Blueberry. The conservation of energy is the principle that runs behind that, that, that mobile. And I'm thinking, subhanAllah, literally inside, bro, I had to stop myself. Because I, I was literally, I was dumbstruck. I was in awe. How? SubhanAllah. I mean, like that, that just, awesome. Blackberry. Sorry, there we go. Blackberry, not Blueberry, Blackberry. Thank you, Melissa, yeah. There we go. I mean, like, I mean, these kinds of things, I mean, like, I'm thinking, subhanAllah, how can, how can you make such a claim like that? But imagine, he, he genuinely believed that this principle is shirk. I understand the intent. I understand, you know, he wants to safeguard himself from bad ideas. But oh my days, come on, man. I mean, like, that's, that's a whole new stretch. Yeah, subhanAllah. <laughs> I mean, to add as a counter question to that, I mean, you know, um, yeah, obviously your your specialty is science uh, and and um, things like um, uh, the example I give is basically my one of my uh, my auntie she did a PhD um, at University of Nottingham in I think it was physics um, she did a, she worked with Rolls Royce and she left uh, she left all of that and she went into naturopathy or something like this and she looked into the, what energy, energy can form and these kinds of stuff went to hijama. And she looked into she looked at energy in a different way, um, and she looked into different methods that are of the mainstream views. Um, and she was lambasted for that by, you know, in terms of uh, the general public who look into science. They look into science in a in a very one dimensional way. Um, could you also would you, would it be wise to, in these institutions that do combine Islamic seminary and modern academic education, could there be a means to be allow allow for different worldviews, different methods? Of approaching science and different methods of of understanding how it works. So, um, are you this question? Is it designated for universities or for seminaries? That's a very good question. Uh, I haven't decided <laughs> yet. Whatever you feel okay. deemed, uh, deemed fit. I'll I'll answer both. I'll answer both. Right in university settings in academia, unquestionably, I can say this from firsthand experience. Politics are there. Okay, politics are there. You question the standard narrative, you may get fired. That, that happens, has happened, will happen, will always be happening. There's no doubt about it, okay? Um, however, and this is, this is the, the point here, right? Um, we have to be careful in uh, not making that an insulation for blinding ourselves to science or not rebuking science altogether. Because, and this is the nature of science, right? If you change something in science that is so foundational, you are geared for getting a Nobel Prize, okay? So there is incentives even by scientists themselves to make game-changing narratives. There is, right? So it's not that 
if you if you challenge a narrative, khalas, you're out of the equation. That's not what happens. Usually, what happens is one person disagrees with another interpretation. That person has a higher position, and that person does not want that individual to succeed. Okay, that's what generally what happens. Okay, that's generally what happens. But questioning the narrative in some places, not across the world, can get you fired, no doubt. So we just got to have this balance in between. This is in academia. So that's that's the question in academia. In seminary places, or rather in this thought of institution, where you have the lumping, the compounding formation of theology, philosophy, and science, and others, right? I personally believe you should allow, you should give oxygen to different opinions coming forth. Because when you don't allow that, that's when I think you get students to go haywire. That is my personal opinion, right? So when you have students saying, okay, I believe in X, I believe in Y, I believe in Z, then you allow the discussion to happen in a safe environment. In an environment where those boundaries or th that safe space is gone, people are less reserved or incredibly vocal that whatever difference of opinion they see, they just shut the conversation altogether. So there's a book called Crucial Con uh, Conversation Killers. Extreme silence where you just become completely reserved or you just go all out. You just want to bang on your opponent and literally vocalize them to death. So these are two extremes, right? So I think having a safe environment where people can express their opinion is incredibly important, right? But I, you've got to bear in mind that this involves the teamwork of ulama, scientists, philosophers, academics together. If you don't have that environment in the teacher level, you're not going to get that on the student level. So I definitely feel that that, I mean, it's going to take a few generations. I hope maybe in my generation we can see this. But I hope it does kick in and we have very strong supporting institutions that provide a very good, clean, holistic narrative in how to engage with these questions. And one thing you've got to bear in mind that no one has all the answers. No one can say they have all the answers. Like we, I know that in contemporary social media, we rely on one individual for absolutely everything to defend Islam. That's not how it works in academia. In academia, at least sophisticated scholarship you can specialize in one area for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and still not exhaust yourself. And you're telling me that somebody can do all this and with the credible scholarship, right? So we have to be very clear here that having expertise in the right place, having institutions that promote teachers relying on one another, helping one another, discussing one another, and then allowing that to trickle down to students is an important part of the process. And only then will I see we'll see these things flourish. And of course, and I think what that will allow us to do is whenever a new question that has never been asked before, um, these questions can be engaged by people who have now the confidence and the tools. If you don't have that to begin with, how can you approach approach new inquiries? I mean, what made Ibn Taymiyyah great? What made Imam Ghazali great? What made Imam Mazridi great? Right? The fact that they questioned the norm. They came up with rich philosophical extensive systems. You may have disagreements with them or their personal disagreements or whatever have you, but that's what they were known for, right? They were literally trying to challenge a narrative, construct appropriate responses to the challenges of their time. But to get to that position, you need to be as sharp and as well-equipped mentally like those individuals. My, my problem is that we don't have that at that stage. Of course, some people have that, no doubt about that whatsoever. Uh, but I'm saying that broadly speaking, this is an interdisciplinary domain. And this is why we need to make sure we have all these areas in front of us. Wallahu alam. Barakallah fikum, barakallah fikum for that.
Um, that's very beneficial. I think we'll have to wrap it up. Uh, let's just see if there's any quick questions we could use. Um, excuse me. Okay. I think inshallah ta'ala we'll have to we'll have to end it there. Um barakallahikum shu'aib for this. Um no problem. You can boo Asim later on in your prayers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, usually the podcast should be about an hour or it's less than an hour or something like that. But whenever Oh sorry, I, I did not know. I'm just no, 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 no. It's nothing wrong with it. I have no there's nothing wrong with it, inshallah. If the if the subject is good and it needs to be discussed. Um and I always find when I'm in this especially this topic. This topic itself is Islam and science. Like you can't. That's like a that's like a ten hour podcast. Really, that wouldn't even give yeah. it justice. Um, so, but the, the real reason, the real reason why Asim wants to go, just to let you know, everyone, he was playing PlayStation. He wants to go back to PlayStation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to get ready for Salah actually. Um, oh, oh, nice one, nice one. <laughs> <laughs> Alhamdulillah. No, Bismillah. Thank you very much, Asim. I really appreciate the conversation. Actually, sorry, before we go, everyone, make sure, inshallah, you follow the YouTube channel, the podcast streams, and uh, you support um, Dr. Shuaib. Do you have a personal Facebook or anything like that? You, you publish yeah, yeah, your yeah. You can, you can, uh, you can uh, uh, what's it called here? If you wanted to share it, uh, I can send it to you in the private chat. There you go. Private chat. Fantastic, fantastic, okay, fantastic, copy, share. Yes, so inshallah, do check out his post, do stalk him on Facebook, if that's the correct word to use. And subhanahu bihamdik wa nashadu wa la ilaha ila ant wa nastaghfuruk wa natubu ilayk wa al-asr inna al-insana fi khusr ila dhina amanu wa amna salihat wa tawasal bil-haqqi wa tawasal bil-sabr. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.